Nah. <laughs> Anyways, I was that kid. I grew up in a little Baptist church in Fernie, and this church was tiny. This church was about actually the size of this middle area right here. And in our church, there was about 40 people, and we had the most boring pastor in the whole world. And so I'd show up. My mom would make me wear a collar shirt with a wool sweater over top. So I am boiling, and the collar is sticking out. I had a bowl cut with a side part, if you can imagine that haircut. How do mothers even come up with this stuff? It was unbelievable. But so the whole time, I just tried to get my brothers to laugh, and I was pretty good at it. But my brothers are pretty easy targets. And one time, my dad let me know, it is just, I'm going too far, and I'm about to get spanked. Now, this was the 80s, and spanking was, you know, it was really highly recommended by the old ladies in the church. And, and so my dad said, you stop it, or you're getting a spanking. And I knew it. But there was this lady sitting behind us, and she sang exactly like a goat. You know, like how goats are like, like that? Or a sheep? I don't know. She sounded like that, and, and I started imitating her, and my dad started laughing. And that is... So my dad is killing himself, and then he picks me up, and he starts carrying me out like a suitcase. And this is what I'm thinking. I'm about to get a spanking, but I'm going to make him pay, too, by telling everybody what's going on. So as I'm getting carried out, I yelled, I'm about to get a spanking! That's what I said. And I thought everybody was going to be like, oh, shame on your dad, shame. That's my expectation. But they all started cheering and clapping. Like everyone at church was just like, yeah! And I'm like, I hate church. (laughs) I seriously hated it so much. I'm going to tell you guys one of the worst things that I ever thought in my life. Are you guys ready? Should I share this? We're recording these now. Okay, so we're in the middle of one of the pastor's messages, and I am dying, and it's horrible. And all of a sudden, oh, this is terrible. Okay, a lady started having a seizure right in the middle of church, and all the men start clearing the chairs and moving them all to the side. And my mom's crying, and she's praying for this lady, and it's pretty emotional. And the whole time I'm thinking, excellent, I bet we get to go home now. Uh, That's bad, right? That's how much I hated church. I was the worst. I had a love-hate relationship with church. So we moved from Fernie to this bigger church in Grand Forks. And I remember the first time I walked in, there was like 200 people, which was enormous for me. And they're singing the song in unison, Our God Reigns. I'll never forget this moment. I walk in, they're singing this song, and the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. Just like this corporate beautiful act of worship, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is so beautiful, and I fell in love with church, like the people there, like, pe- like these um, older ladies would always come up to us with like words of, of encouragement, I didn't realize that these were prophetic words back then, because it was so, you know, you couldn't really say that word back then, but it was beautiful words of life to our family, and it was constant, and they were just praying for people, it was alive, loved it. I fell in love with this church. But then a few years later, we we experienced a really sort of weird church split that none of the younger kids really understood. But my best friend, his family moved to a church across town, and he was no longer allowed to come to our church. So I would go to church and just kind of sit by myself. And, And I just, people were like talking about it, but in really like hushed tones. I could hear like when I went over there, his parents would be arguing and And there would just be like talk about the pastor in really negative ways. And I thought to myself, man, this is so strange. After I went to Bible college, 
I vowed that I would never be involved with church. A guy told me, he says, you're going to be involved with the church? Um, this was a, he, he had this word for me, and I was like, no, nah, there's no chance. I said, I'm going into camp ministry. I will never be involved in church. It's a guarantee. <laughs> That's what I told him. I completely disliked the church, and, and I had a lot of thoughts. Like, I don't really need the church. My, my relationship with God is personal. We've heard that a lot. The church is this man-made invention. It's not God's idea. I don't need organized religion. We hear that all the time. I hear that all the time. It's like, you know what? Church, that's just like, it's just a power grab. Like, that's just an invention of, of men in boardrooms to try to get people to come and give money and build empires, etc., etc. And maybe you feel this way. Or maybe you felt this way in your past. Maybe you have just like, you're like, you know what? I love church, but there's, there's maybe just like, like an, an undergirding of just like, ah, oh, but there's something that I'm just discontent about. And in his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer just so beautifully affirms that that is okay to think that way. This is what he says. He says, disillusionment with the church and even with ourselves, listen to this, is a gift, <laughs> Only that community which enters into the experience of great disillusionment with all its unpleasantness and evil appearances begins to be community. Like, every single person, I believe, once they graduate high school and come into adulthood, has to reinvent and reshape the church. It is this strange thing within our DNA. And I don't think it's that bad. I think that also when people start to have their children leaving the house, that's when they start to need to reinvent the church again in their hearts. Or maybe their role within the church. I think that we all feel some disillusionment, and that's okay. You know what? I deeply love this community. I love it. But I also feel quite a bit of discontent with it. I really believe that, like, Oh, it's, it's so badly as we're just, we want to press into the things of God. We're just scratching the surface. And so often I feel like we're taking two steps forward and one step back and then another step back. And then, you know what I'm saying? I just feel so discontent. And Bonhoeffer puts it well. He says this, we all have these dreams of church where there's like beautiful unity, right? So much love, so much harmony. We walk into the doors and everyone's just like, Joel, 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 Joel. Or maybe, but they're chanting your name. You see, that was speaking in the third person. You see what I'm saying? Sherry, 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 whatever. You come here and it's just complete. And when you're going through things, people have the right words because they're Christians. And when we have needs, people are lining up to give us money. It's kind of like, hey, the golden handshake. And it's like, oh, wow, I've never seen a $1,000 bill. Thank you very much. We all have these great illusions of what church should look like where all of our needs are met. But listen to what Bonhoeffer says. This is profound. He says, God's grace quickly frustrates all such dreams. You're probably thinking, what does that mean? How does his grace frustrate those dreams? He says, a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us as surely as God desires to lead us to an understanding of Christian community. You see, here is why. is the church is a mess. A mess. There's this video that we had that we were going to show at youth one time, and it's supposed to really pump us up. It said something along these lines. It said this. It says, Moses got, sorry, Moses killed a man. Noah 
got drunk. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair. And you're th- it's kind of like, oh, well, thank you for just talking trash about every one of my b- Bible heroes. And so as a team, we're like, no, we're not going to show that video. Because there's sometimes this feeling that, that we have to present this image of Christians that's perfect. But the Bible never lets us go there. Why does the Bible always have to be like, here's a really great man, but he did this. They could have just emitted, omitted it, emitted it omitted it. Think about this. When they're describing all of the apostles, it says, and then there was Simon the zealot. It's not just Simon. No, it's Simon the terrorist. Don't forget. There's Thomas. He's the doubter. There's Peter. He's the disowner and on and on and on. Oh, by the way, um, Judas, he was on in the inner circle, actually betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. One of his staff. Why Does the Bible not hide any of this? Why does the Bible intentionally reveal the dirt on every person? Do you ever wonder? Wow. Because there's no hiding our sins because church reveals the grace of God. That's what church is. It's putting God's redemption on display for the world. It's like, look at this room full of misfits. We're here for the glory of God. Welcome to church. Am I right? That is church. The world needs to see what redemption looks like played out. Think about Legion for a moment. Legion, who is naked, in a graveyard, cutting himself with stones, and screaming out all day. Jesus arrives, casts the demons out. Legion gets clothed. Jesus says, go and be a missionary now. Imagine Legion, whatever his new name was, John, coming up to you. And trying to share the gospel with you. Hey, um, it wouldn't have gone well. How do you think Legion's social skills would have been? Good? He just spent the last many years in a graveyard with nobody. Do you think he's going to plant a really good church? How do you think the coffee is going to be? Not so good. Jesus intentionally uses really messed up people. And now we have a room full of messed up people. And you know what? We hear this a lot that the people say that they've been hurt by the church. And of course, we've been hurt by the church. Any community that we're in is going to hurt us. That's a given. We need to kind of expect that. We're all social misfits. This is kind of like a junior high dance here. Feelings are going to get hurt. You know, things are going to be said that we didn't mean to. Things are going to get misinterpreted. You see, we're all misfits for the glory of God, and that's how it's meant to be, because this reveals the glory and grace of the Creator. Isn't that beautiful to you guys? Man, Francis Chan just put out his new book, and I really like it. It's called Letters to the Church. Um, He says this. He says, So many people feel like church is optional today, and they'd rather connect with God on their own, because all these weird people make it difficult. But it's when we appreciate God's design for the church that we can really step into it. And we're left in wonder. And today we're going to study what that looks like, the design of the church. We're going to actually look at it from Scripture and say, okay, God, what did you intend? Is there anything here that you didn't intend? I'm sure there is, but let's dig, right? Why don't we all just spend 30 seconds where we're at and just ask the Holy Spirit to fill us to just lead us into all truth. That's his function in this place. 
He brings the fruit of the Spirit, but he also leads us into truth and interprets Scripture. That's what the Spirit does. So let's just spend 30 seconds privately and just pray. Amen. Well, there was a young guy, and his name was K.P. Yohannan, and he so desperately wanted to be a missionary. This is him here before. Um, that's him on the left when he was in his 20s, and then that's him today in his 70s. Um, as a young man, he wanted to be a missionary, and he went to join this missionary organization, but he was way too young, and they told him he couldn't be a part of it. So as they were moving... Um, they whenever we're on trains, when they got to the next train station, he was so determined to be a missionary that when he got to the next train station, he climbed onto a cement slab, and then he's up there looking at all these people. This is in India. He didn't know what to do, so he started singing kids' songs, like from Sunday school. And he started singing them out, just, Jesus loves me, this I know. And all the people start gathering. They're like, there's a guy singing songs up on that slab. And when he gathered a big group, he just started preaching. And this guy was gifted at just sharing truth. And people came to Christ. And the director of this missions organization was there, and he watched it. And he says, we'll take you. We want you. And so they took him. And he went from village to village in India and it was remarkable what happened. They said it was like the book of Acts. There were just healings like crazy. There was one guy named Sundar John, and he showed up, and he was possessed. He had so many demons. He had 74 demons in him that as they prayed, he was, they said that he was rolling around and frothing, and his eyes were back in his head. And so all of the older guys went around him and prayed, and they delivered him from these demons. And this guy, Sundar John, went on to the villages ahead of them. They said that there were so many salvations. There were thousands. There were thousands of healings. Just incredible. Until he got to this one town. This is sort of what it looks like today. This is Bundi in India. And it was here that he preached. And he encountered the first stoning of his life. Where they they gathered around him. And they stoned him. um, Not to death, obviously. But he said that this was the first time that it happened. And then it happened a few more times, and as he approached villages, the locals heard that he was coming, and they were prepared to stone him. And so what he decided to do was he was going to actually, he was going to retrace his steps and go throughout the villages that he had already visited, and when he went to these villages, this is what he found. He said that they, they gave literature, and they preached Jesus, and many people received Christ, but as they went back, he said that none of them continued on. He said that many of the healings seem to become undone. Many, like many people in India are demon-possessed. He said that they all went back to the same state. He said it was a complete mess. He said that it was as if they had never stepped foot in these villages. And he went to next village, to next village, to next village. And they actually did a survey amongst the villages and found that they had zero effect in these regions. And this is what he said. He said, in one town, I felt such a deep despair, I literally sat down on a curb and sobbed. I wept the bitter tears that only a child can cry. He just stopped. He stopped doing anything. And, and he went home, and he, he 
quit. He gave up. And he said that he made the biggest mistake of his life in that he planted no churches. He said he preached the gospel, but then he didn't plant anything. When they came back, there was no support. He has since this moment given his life to planting churches, and he's started this beautiful organization. It's called the Gospel for Asia, and they're reaching thousands that are now being plugged in and planted. Listen to the great commission that Jesus gives us. This is the same thing that he had received. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So the disciples received this. Okay, the Great Commission. This is what it is. And you know what they did? They immediately went into these cities and the first thing they did was plant churches and assign elders. It's, the, it's what they did. Jesus gave the commission. This is what the disciples did. And this is how the entire thing took off. And they saw so many healings. It was outrageous. But as soon as they planted the churches, they changed how they did it. This is James 5. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. I would contend that the, that the, the early church's view of eldership and of the church actually was much more organizational than it is today. I would say that we have sort of looked at it as something that is, that is perhaps outdated. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock that he's speaking about is the fact that he is the Messiah, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. See, this is an intentional oxymoron. He says, these gates will not overcome the church. But gates are not offensive. They're defensive. I saw this cool painting. I thought, it's kind of weird, but it also is kind of cool. There's this vision, this image of the gates of Hades. And as you can see, the only purpose is completely defensive. There's no offense into the church here. It's not as though they're planning some great move from these walls. It's completely defensive. And what Jesus is saying is intentional. A church that is passive and defensive itself will be overtaken. If we just do nothing... We just sit with our friends and with our lives and do nothing about those gates, even though they're not trying to overtake us, we will be overtaken by ourselves. Whoa. We will overtake ourselves. Everybody will fight something. If we're not fighting for good, we're going to fight ourselves. And so this is the beautiful image of the church. If you guys have your Bibles, could you grab them for this? This is our main text. We covered this a lot last year because we went through the book of Acts. But go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I have so much to say, but this can be our only text. When I finished my message in the middle of the week, I had 16 pages. And I I found out that it takes about eight minutes to deliver each page. (laughs) That would be like two hours. So I really had to cut. And I really believe this is what God has for us. It's really simple. I hope you've heard it many times. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So the Holy Spirit came. They received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues, which was many languages, to the many different people that were represented there. About 12 different tribes, different people were there to listen. And then they planted this church immediately after that was, that was devoted to these four things. And they started around with the apostles' teaching. And this is critical. Like, the fact that we're in here studying the word, this, is, this was the foundation of the church. If you guys drive through Kelowna, you're going to find that on nearly every corner, major intersection, there's two people standing with a magazine rack. Have you guys seen that? And a lot of them will say things like, how about your family? Or when is God coming back? These are Jehovah Witnesses. And they're, they're everywhere. And I drive by them, and I think to myself, man, I wish we were this zealous. I really admire the fact that they're out there in many ways. But the fact is, is without good teaching, it's just absolutely, it's shifting sand. This right here is Charles Taze Russell. And Charles Taze Russell is the founder of the Jehovah Witness Church. And in the early 1800s, he had a Bible study out of a church. And he started teaching the Bible. And then he started to make up his own things. And that church fired him. And he just started his own little Bible study. And after a while, his, his wife divorced him. He actually went to jail for fraud and forgery. And after three years, he died. But he had this little following in this little Bible study. And another guy shows up named Joseph Rutherford. And this is him here. Joseph Rutherford um, shows up, and he hated Charles Taze Russell. And he actually overturned all of that doctrine in this little group. He changed it all completely out of spite and then he created this magazine called The Watchtower. And what's interesting about The Watchtower is that every, every, um, every new issue creates new doctrine, and it actually reverses previous doctrine if it's different. So it's constantly shifting. It's constantly in flux. And it has been, it's been really damaging because of this. In, in like the mid-1900s, they believed that any dark-skinned people were demon-possessed. That didn't obviously go over so well, so in the next issue of the Watchtower, it was reversed. So this is completely shifting sand. The problem is, is that in our city, there are thousands, maybe not thousands, for surely hundreds of people who are basing their lives upon teaching that is completely baseless. And that is so scary. And they have this... this this image of being well-read and having the authority on these topics. And I look at them and I just think, I feel so bad for you because you actually don't know. You don't know. John 6, 63 says this, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. This is Jesus. He's saying that it's my words that are full of spirit and life. My words. It's the words of Jesus that do this. The church has to be the major player in society at providing the way of Jesus. It's, it's the way, the truth, and the life. It's completely different, and it leads to liberty for people. So we need to be a place that doesn't get watered down by what culture is saying, but say, no, 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 no. 
Like the scriptures are beautiful and they're truth and nothing can be added to them and nothing can be taken from them. This is what the church does. And I believe that the church has a major role in this. Like I said, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, what happened? They spoke in many languages. When my grandpa got saved, he was at a German revival meeting and heard it in his own language. That would not have happened if he was just with his friend reading the Bible. This is, this is a corporate gift. Also, the gift of prophecy is meant to be a corporate gift. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, there were prophets because they didn't have the word and they didn't have the Holy Spirit. So God spoke through prophets. In the New Testament, we have the Word and we have the Spirit, so there's three kinds of prophecy. Number one, there's the office of the prophet. This is a pretty rare individual who guides and directs the churches along with their leadership through prayer and, and just seeking God. Then there's, then there's prophecy that we speak to each other, and this is like words of identity that strengthen, encourage, and comfort. But then there is prophecy from the pulpit, This is when the Holy Spirit interprets the words of the preacher for you individually. Critical. I believe that God has shaped my life through that prophetic voice incredibly. God is speaking to lots of you guys and just bypassing me entirely tonight. This is really important. And I think this is really critical. And in Acts, they saw so many miracles that they needed some sort of foundation This is what Acts 1-1 says. Listen, this is really important. Acts 1-1. At the beginning of all this madness, listen to this. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. John Calvin calls this the holy knot. Everything that he did, the miracles, and the teaching. You can't have the miracles without the teaching because it's like two strings. Unless it's a holy knot, they'll trip the person up. It'll lead to so much messed up theology. A pastor in Africa wanted to show his people that he had lots of faith. So he decided that he was going to walk on water. And go ahead and Google it. This is what happened. He got eaten by three crocodiles in front of his congregation. This is no joke. Another pastor just actually drowned in front of his congregation. They watched him die. Imagine driving home in the car that day. Well, honey, that was different. <laughs> Another pastor wanted, because Paul, when, when, he, when, he went, <laughs> when he showed up on one of the islands, a poisonous viper bit him and he shook it off. And they're all like, whoa. And then they took him to whatever. He healed everyone's family. Interesting story. But this, this pastor wanted to show that he had the same ability. And so he brought in a poisonous snake. It bit him. He died. The holy knot is incredibly important because scripture also says not to put God to the test. These were beautiful acts of faith that God used in that moment. But without good theology, we will be completely messed up. You know what? Corporate preaching is vital. Jesus spent most of his childhood in the temple listening to teaching because he valued it. When he went missing for three days and they couldn't find him, when they finally found him, Jesus said, well, where did you think I would be? Of course I was going to be in my father's house. Why didn't you look there? That's where I always am. 
This was so important to Jesus, and I believe it needs to be really important to us. And they also devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship's a weird word. We were going to, when we named the ark originally, the ark was on a houseboat. We came up with the name ark. But one of my stupid ideas for a name was the fellowship. (laughs) Hey? Pretty horrible, right? Nobody would have ever gone on the fellowship. That sounds whatever. Fellowship is this beautiful word that just speaks of deep friendship. Two weeks ago, we talked of splanchizomai, this like from the womb, this like brotherhood, sisterhood. When we went to Africa, it was so cool because um, World Vision just brought us to all these different church groups and different Christians. And everybody that we met, as we looked into their eyes, it was just like, you're my brother, (laughs) you're my sister. Everywhere we went, we'd go, seriously, we showed up just in the middle of the plains, and we see this guy running from like (laughs) four kilometers away. It's like, oh, we're waiting for that guy. And you can just, just like running. And seriously, we're waiting for a very long time. And he shows up all sweaty, and we're just like, you're my brother. We just had this bond, this like, it's so, they, they carry these sticks, these walking sticks, and to them, it was a gift, lots of times from their fathers, that represent, like, sonship. And this guy that ran and chased us and found us, we're hanging out. And we were only with him for maybe 10 minutes, and we're leaving. And he's just like, here. And he gives me his staff. And all of his friends are just like, what? You're, like, you're, you're giving, like, that's your most treasured possession, and you're giving it to him. And we just had this immediate, unbelievable bond. It's this fellowship that can only come by the Holy Spirit dwelling in both of us. Bringing it back from Africa was freaky because it was attached to my bag and it kept getting caught in all like the things, you know what I'm talking about? Little conveyor belts and everything. It made it. I have it at my house if you want to see it. But we were created for this. When we were on our LA trip in Santa Monica, um, one of our guys, Dylan, decided he was going to try to piggyback ride on one of the, a girl, Shay, who's like half of his weight and crumples her right on the beach. And she's laying there in so much pain. And all of a sudden I hear, oh, yeah, Joel, the ambulance is coming for Shay. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, you know, buying sunglasses or something. And I go back there and there's all these girls around her praying for her and just these most beautiful words for her. And I'm just like, oh, our youth group's so nice. These girls are so nice. Listen to the words they're saying to Shay. And so I'm going around them. I'm just like, hey, yeah, this is wonderful. And then I'm like, whoa, you're not our girls. Who are you girls? And it was just these rando other girls, like five of them. And the beautiful thing was that the Holy Spirit in them was the same spirit that was in us. And it was just this beautiful family moment. It's so hard to explain. We went to this house of prayer. And as we got there, we were just like praying and worshiping. And people in the house of prayer would come up to us and just like say, hey, thanks for coming. We love you guys. And they would just start praying for us. And they would just pray beautiful words to each one of us. Like this was incredible. Our kids all left. They were all crying in the bus. And I'm like, that is church. That is fellowship. Church is not passive. It's not a group of people coming when one person uses their spiritual gifts and then sitting there singing while nine people use their gifts. That's not church. Church is when we come, and yes, we go through the scriptures, but actively, church is where we come and we actually take part in fellowship. 
by blessing and praying for each other and coming and actively thinking, okay, I am going to love these people. I'm going to speak words to these people. And sometimes I think we look at ministries that we've started and think, that's just, that's just human. Why do we do those things? Man, we see this happening. In the early church, it grew so fast that there was these widows, and they were Greek. They were Hellenized widows. They were, they were Greek. And in the Jewish city of Jerusalem, they were looked down upon. Pharisees, if they saw a Greek woman, they would spit on her. They said, you're not even a human if you're Hellenized, which means Greek-influenced. And so all these Hellenized widows were in the church, and they felt left out like the church wasn't loving them. And so the church took this really serious. Acts 6, verse 2, listen to what they did. So the 12 gathered. These are the 12 apostles. And they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. They had to feed them, but they're like, we can't feed them. We're preaching all day. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. They took this serious. They created the first ever ministry. This was the Hellenized Widows feeding program. And you know what? This changed everything in the church. Listen to what happens because they did this. Verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You're thinking, wait, okay, look at that. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You're thinking, what does that mean? Back then in Jerusalem, there was about 18,000 priests that worked in the temple. Because during Passover, millions of people would come, the priests would be there with their knife, (laughs) and they would slit the throats of the lamb or the sheep or whatever, the dove, and they would pour it into a bowl, and then there'd be a line of thousands of priests, and they would pass the bowl down, pass the bowl down, pass the bowl down. They would, they would pour it onto the altar, and they say that it, it ran like a river of blood out of the altar. They say that it ran three days after Passover. Oh, it took 18,000 priests to do this. Picture that number. If you go to a hockey game in Vancouver, there's 18,000 fans there. Imagine that many priests, all paid for by the temple. This is what they did. And now, you got to understand that in the, in the temple, this is where all the apostles were preaching, and Paul was healing people, and they watched it all. They watched people get healed. They heard the best preaching in the world, but nothing changed their lives until they fed the widows. And then they're like, if this is how you treat the widows, we're in. Priests left their jobs as Jewish priests to be Christians because of this ministry. Fellowship. It changes everything. Who cares about fancy preaching and great worship if you don't have love? Am I right? This is what we do when we get here. We need to be like that prayer house. You show up and you think, how do I bless people in this house? How do I do it? Romans 12.10 says this, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. So we outdo each other. We, do, we, we try to outdo each other in showing love and honor. This is how we live. We show up to church and it's like, okay, 
Oh, I'm going for it. This is what church looks like. And listen to this. It gets even crazier. There's this radical statement. The early church is about, okay, preaching, fellowship, I get it. But then it says, and breaking of bread. You're like, okay, you had me at the first two, and then come up and take that bread and dip it in the juice, and it's not even wine. It's juice. And that is what church is built on? What is that all about? It's a radical statement because Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Now, you have to understand that then bread was a staple. They had to eat it daily or they would start to starve. If you have a good meal with bread, that's wonderful. But the next day you're hungry. And if you don't have it that day, you start to shut down. If you don't have it by the third day, you can begin to starve. Jesus is saying just so straight up that if you aren't intentionally having intimacy with me every day, you're spiritually declining and starving every day. It can't just be Sundays. It can't just be missions trips or camps. If it's not today, you're starving. Tomorrow, you're going to begin to starve again. And every time we come to this place, we break bread and we recognize, okay, he is my sustenance. He is my bread of life. We take stock of times we didn't trust him in the last week. We reconfigure our lives to him. It is basically a statement that says Christ is everything to me. He is my nourishment. It's huge. It seems small, but it's massive. And finally, we pray. And this is, this is what they did. It's another huge statement because prayer seems like they're not doing anything. So things are going tough, so what do you do? You go and like, just pray. Oh, what is that doing? Listen to what Francis Chan says. He says, prayer is not merely the task of ministry. It's the gauge that exposes our heart's condition. Now, everyone needs to really zone in on this. How do you know if you are following Christ? How do you know if you are or not? How do you know if you're a poser or the real thing? It's prayer. It unveils our pride, showing us whether we believe we are powerless without God. If we're not praying, it reveals that we think we can do it without God, and that's not a follower of Christ. If we're praying, it reveals that we recognize that we can't do it without God. When we pray, it is an expression of surrender to God and reliance on his power. You see, God only works when we pray. He has made that so clear in Scripture. And our power is only from him. And I think it's important to know that they did these four things, but it says really straight up that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves. And this is huge. The Greek word for devoted is this. Did you get that on there, Sean? It's a really cool word. I didn't really highlight it very well. Oh, well, you put the whole thing. Look at that word right there. It's proskartario. And it's a word that means this. It's a word that means fully committed. Number one priority, they were fully committed. This was everything. Sometimes I think, man, we're asking people to come to church every week. You see, they spent three times a day praying in the temple. They'd go there in the morning. Then they'd go there at noon. 
and then they'd go there at four. It was the center of their lives. They were completely devoted to it. In Iran, if you want to join the church, you have to sign a written statement agreeing to lose your property, be thrown in jail, and be martyred for your faith. They say that if you're not willing to do any of those three, you can't be a part of the church. Whoa. Did you know that in Iran, they say that it is the, the, the largest growing church right now in the world because of this? The Desert Fathers, these were guys that just went and just sought the heart and the will of God. The Desert Fathers said this. It said that one Christian is no Christian. If a man doesn't have the church as his mother, he can't have God as his father. Whoa. You see, I always thought that church is such a pain because of all the messy people. But I I really quickly came to realize that if I don't have the church as my mother, then God's not going to be my father. That's a huge statement. When we started the ark, I I realized a trend in so many of of my friends that that went to camp, and all my friends went to camp growing up. And they all went, and we all had counselors from Vancouver and Calgary and a speaker from Edmonton, and they, they gave their lives to Jesus. But then when it came time for the fall, zero of them came to youth because they didn't know anyone. It was a camp, but it had nothing to do with church. And I decided that, you know what, camp cannot exist without church. Camp and church have to be buddies, best friends, that one can't exist without the other. And I believe that that's true with all of our faiths, that we're created for each other. This is how God made us. You see, we need to love the church and care for it and build it up. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that the Spirit dwells in your midst? Now this is hard to understand what Paul's saying. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. In other places, he calls us living stones, with Christ as the cornerstone. That we are the temple, but we're alive, and we're all living stones in it. You see, we tend to view the church as a location or a staff team, Lots of times in the States, they'll be like the name of the church, and then it'll say senior pastor, and then the name. Because it's the pastor that gives the church the identity. I think that's so flawed because we are the temple. We are the living stones, and, and it's sacred. And this is not a church or, or something that's destroyed from the outside, but from the inside. This is something that we destroy ourselves, You see, we're living in a time where we're trained to be critical, aren't we? Like, if we don't like a product that we've just purchased on Amazon, we give a negative review. It's like, review this. We go out for a meal, we have to instantly review it. We go to a hotel, we get an email that says, review your stay. And everything we do is about rating. Pictures on social media, do you like it? We're trained to... To, to review everything. Every movie that I look at when I'm going to rent it, I see everyone else's review. Oh, that's only got a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes? No way. I'll only watch an 80 plus. This is what we do. And we do this with church too. And I hear this a lot. And listen to me, if this is you, I'm not... It's fine. I've done it too. But people will come and they'll say, hey, I'm here to check out Pursuit. I'm like, okay, cool. And they're like, yeah, I usually go to fill in the blank, but I wasn't getting a lot out of it. 
I wasn't getting anything out of it. The worship wasn't doing anything for me. And then I think to myself, you're going to be here twice. <laughs> and then you're going to go to the next place, and you're going to say, yeah, I went to Pursuit. I just, you know, uh, I'm not getting much out of it. And, you know, that's just the way I feel right now. And you know what? This is such a destructive view of the church. The church is devoted to the apostles' teaching, where you show up and it's like, I want to learn where you come devoted to fellowship, devoted to breaking of bread and, and making him the center of your life, and devoted to prayer, it's got nothing to do with you receiving. It's everything to do with you being active. Do you guys get this? It's a totally different way of looking. Listen to what Francis Chan says. He says, We point out the flaws in our pastor's sermon with the same conviction that we critique a movie star acting or favorite team's recent loss. Could it be... We're taking a sledgehammer to the temple in doing so. Whoa. I really think so. The temple is sacred, and we are the temple, the body of Christ. And this is why we're told to never speak a negative word about anyone in our family, because we're the temple. This is why we're called to build each other up. This is why we're called to speak words of life to each other every time we enter. That's why fellowship is king. Because when we speak words of life to each other, we're building the temple. When we speak critical words, we're tearing it down. You see, we're called to be devoted to each other. And love keeps no record of wrong. Love assumes the best in each other. And this is a revelation of God's grace. You know what? Love the church. Speak well of her. It's the very instrument of God. And, and this is a junior high dance. I get that. Like, your feelings will be hurt, I promise. I'll hurt your feelings if you want. I'm sure I do all the time. If I think of something funny to say with the mic, I'll say it. And then afterwards, that person will just sort of be looking, you know. <laughs> but this is his plan. It's the church, and it's beautiful, and we get it right. People will sacrifice everything to know the Jesus that we have. It's beautiful. Do you guys see the beautiful picture of the church in Scripture? I invite you in your, in your just time with Jesus is to spend time with him every day because if you don't, you're dying spiritually. And go back and reread the book of Acts. That is what the church looks like. Those are the acts of the apostles. And, and it's still going. We're still writing the book of Acts right now. But that is what the church looks like, and that's what we're going to contend for. I'm going to invite you. We're going to worship now. And, and you know what? We just dream of this whole front area becoming a place of prayer during worship. And this is what we dream of, that people are going to come up and be set free. People receive Christ nearly every week up here. People are healed regularly. And then we want to share those stories and increase faith so that people are like, oh, I want to go to church. I want to go. Like, that's, you know what? Ugh. I desire the very intimacy and presence of God. And I'm going to come and just be an aggressive fellowshipper. <laughs> so let me pray. And then I invite you to come and take bread with us. Pray if you'd like. I invite you to just worship where you're at. Let's just make this active church. Amen? Active church. Not one person using their gifts. All of us united, going for it, firing it up. Let's pray. So, Father, Jesus, God, forgive me for the times that have spoken ill of your bride. 
God, I pray that you would light a fire in our community, God, and it would be based on the fact that we love people with sacrifice, God. God, that they would see how much we love each other and sacrifice for each other, God. And God, that they would instantly, God, be willing to lay everything else down for that. Father, I just pray, God, that, that everyone in this place, God, would recognize their, most, their beautiful place within the bride, God. You call us living stones. God, you're proud of us. You love us. God, I believe that you look at each one of us as objects of grace and you delight in the fact that we're objects of grace, God. That our past, God, doesn't disqualify us from what you're doing, God, but makes us uniquely qualified for what you want to do in us, God. Oh, God, I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, God, that we would just be able to worship you now in spirit and in truth, Father. We love you. We love your presence, God. We love coming to the table eating of the bread of life, God. Thank you, Father, for dying. Thank you that we can lay down our lives like you did and receive the life that you accomplished on the cross, Father. Amen.